0: we're open I'm like oh instead of you know that that anxiety brings that oh no and we kind of close down with curiosity we open up oh what's happening you can't be closed and open at the same time they're binary opposites
1: hi i'm sarah wilson and this is wild a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life here we will continue my 10 year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. Look, I don't think it's any great secret that I have struggled with anxiety. I spent seven years writing a warts and ugly moments and all book about it, like all about it. Much of what I've written and investigated about anxiety over the last 20 years or so has been about reframing anxiety beyond the medical model, which for the past three decades has explained it away as a chemical imbalance in the brain that can be fixed with some kind of chemical pill. Now, this is a theory that is scientifically baseless, actually, which is for another discussion, I I guess. But there is one factlet I do love to point out when I have these kinds of discussions, and that is that anxiety only entered the DSM, which is the main diagnostic tool used by psychiatrists around the Western world, as a medical issue in 1980, which was one year after the first anti-anxiety pill was invented. Now, you can form your own conclusions from there. Anyway, as I've spoken about in previous episodes of this podcast series, in recent years, I have largely learned to not just live with, but thrive with my colourful cocktail of anxiety diagnoses. In part, this levelling came from writing a book on it, And I often say the best fix to anything is to, in fact, write a book about it. Like when I wrote a book about quitting sugar, it was the best way to stop me from eating sugar because I couldn't walk down the street eating an ice cream um, at any stage. You're held to account by your own words. And it's the same with anxiety. Writing and campaigning on it got me vigilant and I had to kind of step up into what I believed to be true. The other fix for me in terms of getting me to a place where I thrive with anxiety is is activism, climate activism specifically, which I talked about in a previous series um, in a chat with climate psychologist Margaret Klein-Salomon, which you can go and listen to. But all that said, some gnarly, residual, angsty stuff still remains in my viscera. And I dance with it in my most private moments beyond all this podcasting and loud talking and my social mediaing. I guess in many ways it feels ingrained like a habit, like an addiction as it happens. Also, and I just want to say, my interest in recent years has turned to the collective anxiety that humanity is feeling at the moment because anxiety is everywhere. And what bothers me is that it is preventing humans en masse from rising into fired-up action to save this one wild and precious life on this planet. Our fear, our anxiety, our collective anxiety has paralysed us. So it was in one of my deep dives on the subject while working on another project out of the US recently that I came across Dr. Judson Brewer and his theory that anxiety is an addiction or habit that we have collectively got hooked on.
0: Hi, my name is Dr. Jud Brewer. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I'm an associate professor at Brown University and also the executive medical director of behavioral health at Sharecare.
1: And in his most recent book, Unwinding Anxiety, he brings together two decades or so of mindfulness training and brain research to map out a really fresh path through anxiety. It landed in early to mid-2021, with the globe wound up in pandemic angst. So a lot of what he's able to talk about with us is how to navigate our uncertain future together via his gloriously wild hack. Welcome to WILD, Dr Judd Brewer.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Look, I just mentioned that your latest book came out, I think, in March 2021. Can I ask, were you writing part of it during some kind of lockdown, during the pandemic?
0: Well, I had to update it based on the pandemic. So I'd written the majority of it actually back in December of 2019 and I had had to revamp the entire, I think, first and second chapters and part of the last chapter, based on this huge spike that we saw in anxiety in with the pandemic, and and highlighted you know highlighted some examples of why that was the case. So yes, I had no idea; nobody had any idea that this was coming, uh, and I really had to <laughs> buckle down. and And it was interesting because it was like data were coming in in real time, you know, and it's like. Here's this vast social experiment that nobody wants to be doing, but nobody has, you know, nobody gave consent for, but you know, it was kind of forced upon all of us around this just wave after wave of uncertainty that was just driving everybody nuts.
1: It kind of hammered your point home, didn't it? It actually, it added more legitimacy to your arguments.
0: It did. And it, you know, the data couldn't be more prescient. You know, it's it's kind of like, here is, you know, anxiety has gone up threefold in all of these different realms. Like nobody can ignore this now. And here's a clear example and everybody can relate to it. Like everybody on the planet (laughs) has been affected by COVID-19.
1: I went through exactly the same experience. My book came out in, oh gosh, in the States in January, 2021. So just a little before yours. And I was writing it throughout 2020 right up until July um, and it came out in September of 2020 in Australia. So it was a very quick turnaround. But the pandemic happened and then the Australian bushfires and then Mm. Me Too and then George Floyd and my publishers eventually had to say, can you just get this damn book to the printers because Martians will land next. But (laughs) it actually was a gift in the sense that it made my, me more confident in my argument. And if anything, I let rip a little more when I did the rewrites. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to hold back and apologize yeah. for these ideas in and around anxiety and, um, and so on. Um, so yeah, I was curious if you'd gone through the same thing. It was, it was very meta, wasn't it? Very meta. Mm-hmm. So look, let's get to some basics uh, to kick off with. I'm wondering if you could explain how habits or addictions work, starting from this idea of the trigger.
0: I'd be happy to. So you can think of these things being what are the necessary and sufficient components to form a habit? And in fact, you can break it down to about three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward or a result a reward from a brain standpoint. So if you think of our ancient ancestors who had to remember where food is, they didn't have refrigerators. So imagine them out on the Savannah or in the bush and they had to find food, right? So they, our brains aren't big enough to just be constantly laying down memories. We have to be selective when we remember things. And so our brains are set up to remember things based on surprise or novelty. So imagine, you know, you're forging. you find some food. Ah, oh, there's some food. So there's that trigger. We eat the food. That's the behavior. Oh, and, you know, calories. Our stomach says, oh, calories, survival. And, and our stomach actually releases, causes this release of dopamine in our brain. And what that dopamine does is it says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it lays down what we call a context-dependent memory that says, remember the context and remember the food. And so really this system helps us learn, you know, a very basic level how to approach things that are helping us survive and avoid things that are, that are going to uh, make us not survive. You know, it's like help us eat and not be eaten, you know, because we see the saber tooth tiger, we run away and there's the reward. Okay.
1: Yeah. And this is what you put forward in your book is uh, that anxiety is a habit. So how yeah. can anxiety be a habit? <laughs>
0: yeah, This is not something that I learned in medical school, uh, not something I learned in residency. I don't think I slept through the anxiety class. I think it just isn't a dominant paradigm that's being taught. But this actually formed, you know, this idea came about when I was, I was, I, you know, my lab studies habit changed and we had been developing this digital therapeutic for helping people overcome stress and emotional eating. And somebody in that program said that they, you know, the trigger was anxiety and they were stress eating. And they asked if I could develop a program for anxiety. And I was thinking, well, I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medications for anxiety. But if you look at how well medications work for anxiety, the best ones out there, there's this term number needed to treat, which gives you a sense for how many people need to take a medication before one person benefits for med- for anxiety, that number is 5.2, meaning, I have to treat five patients before one person shows a significant reduction.
1: I've never heard that metric before. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. We use it in medicine just to get it, you know, a good sense for anything. You know, it's like, okay, what's the quick and dirty? What's that number needed to treat? So 5.2, keep that in your head. So I was basically playing the medication lottery with my patients because we're not good enough at, at predicting who's going to benefit from medication and who's not Yeah, I think down the road, we'll get better at that. So, you know, it, that, that person who was using our right now program put this bug in my ear and I was thinking, man, what can I do to help people? Cause I'm struggling. I'm anxious myself trying to help my patients with anxiety because I don't know what to do. So I, I went back and I looked at this literature from the 1980s uh, Thomas Borkovic and others had suggested that anxiety could be driven like any other habit. And I, I swear my eyes popped out of my head. Cause I was like, I never thought of that before. And I know something about how to change habits. You know, We've gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking. You know, We've gotten 40% reduction in craving-related eating. All of these things based on this trigger behavior result mechanism. And here, these folks were saying, hey, anxiety can trigger the mental behavior of worrying, which a lot of people don't think about. You know, They think about a behavior being something you can see somebody do. Yep. Well, guess what? There are a lot of behaviors going on in your head <laughs> you know. and worrying is not a particularly helpful behavior, but our brains think that it is, you know, because, you know, we worry, we feel like we're more in control or we at least feel like we're doing something. And that's what's rewarding for us. You know, imagine somebody with their teenager who first gets their driver's license and, you know, and their kid goes out, Bye, I'm you know, I'll be back at 10 o'clock. Well, that parent is going to freak out and worry the whole night. Oh, no, are they going to be safe? And I can guarantee you that their worrying is not leading to the safety of their child. (laughs) But at least they're doing something.
1: Exactly. They think they're doing something. And then, of course, when the kid comes home safely, they get the reward. Is that, is that right? They get the reward because, Oh, my worrying produced our cognitive dissonance leads us to think that, Oh, they came home. It must've been our my worrying that did it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Mm. That, that superhuman power of worrying. No. In fact, it makes us subhuman because it makes our thinking part of the brain go offline. The more we worry, the, (laughs) the worse we do on any, any performance on any metric.
1: Yeah, so have I got this right? It's sort of like the amygdala is the part of the brain that controls anxiety, the flight, fight and freeze response. And that can actually end up really, and I know you don't necessarily like using this language, but let's say the prefrontal (laughs) cortex basically goes offline, right? The part that can actually um, access discerning thought.
0: There, that's fair to say. Yeah, yep. I think the amygdala gets conflated as this 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 big mover and a shaker. It is certainly involved in fear and fear based learning and all of those things, but it's much more complex than that. But yes. let's I, I, let's go with the prefrontal cortex goes offline when we get stressed. I'll go with that.
1: Yeah. So so it's actually a big furfy, isn't it? That when we're worrying, the part of the brain that actually can solve our problems and work through um, something that's complex shuts down. So it, yes. it, it's actually, yeah, very counterintuitive. And yet I think there's a Harvard study, and I think I might've read it in one of your books, that says that 47% of our day is spent sort of ruminating, you know, worrying backwards and forwards in a way that many listeners would be familiar with, and that it causes unhappiness and an inability to, to access our rational, discerning brain
0: yeah so this was a study by killingsworth and gilbert i think back in 2010 so over 10 years ago but they they really highlighted this aspect of when our minds are wandering, you know, we often wander to the past or the future. And like you're talking about, we're very good at regretting things that we've done in the past. And we're really good at worrying about things that might happen in the future. And on average, no matter what we're daydreaming about, uh, on average, we're less happy than when we're just spending time in the present moment. And I think they concluded that a, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. That was the last sentence of their paper.
1: Yeah, I I do actually remember coming across it in a number of different contexts, actually. Um, So I understand how, for instance, alcohol or drugs can be a habit, trigger, uh, behaviour, and then a reward. That all makes sense. And I also understand how anxiety or worry, so there's a trigger, whatever it might be, and then our behaviour is the worrying, the fretting, the Mm -hmm. ruminating, and then, of course, we, we get what we think is a reward from it. And that keeps us in a loop. We then will just stay in that loop and not break out of it. And that's how it becomes an addiction. But I'm going to challenge you by asking, how does it apply to climate anxiety, which I think a lot of people are feeling at the moment? Because climate anxiety generally results in an overwhelmed feeling where Mm -hmm. we then go into inaction. So our behaviour is often a oh my God, I can't even, I'm just going to go and numb out in front of Netflix and flick through Twitter. So can you explain to me how climate anxiety works as a habit? Because of course, that's a habit we really need to get out of. We need to break that habit to yes. to, to save the planet.
0: Yes. So I think there are two pieces here that are helpful to understand from a neuroscientific standpoint. One is that our brains don't like uncertainty. And I say don't like in the sense that That uncertainty drives us to get information because when there's uncertainty, you know, let's say, you know, we're out in the bush again and we we hear a rustling in the bush. And our brain says, "Oh no, what is that?" Well, it's really important to either go and figure out if that's dangerous or run away because if we don't, we're like, "Yeah, whatever." Bush is rustling. <laughs> you know, thing comes out and eats us. Yeah. Whatever the thing is. So, from a survival standpoint, that mechanism is set up that that uncertainty, you know, resolving uncertainty is set up to help us survive. So our brains just don't like uncertainty. Well, guess what? With climate change, there is a ton. Of uncertainty, right? So the second piece on top of that is our brains are set up to, uh, you know, to move toward things that are pleasant and move away from things that are unpleasant, right? Mm-hmm. So when with that uncertainty, when it can't be resolved, when we, when we start fearing the future, like, oh no, what's going to happen. And we start thinking into these worst case scenarios that is not very pleasant, Right, so our brain says this is unpleasant. In fact, this is really unpleasant. In fact, this feels really overwhelming. In fact, I'm just going to shut down because I cannot take this anymore. Mm -hmm. And so our brains start running to anything they can find to make to help us distract from it. So go on social media, look at cute pictures of puppies or kittens or whatever. Um, We binge on Netflix. We stuff ourselves with food. We drink alcohol. We do all these things as a way to numb ourselves. And that's you know these are two basic mechanisms that are set up to help us survive. But in today's climate, you know, with climate anxiety, they feed off of each other to the point where we get overwhelmed because our brains can't resolve the uncertainty. And then we run to something to, uh, to help us, you know, what was the Rolling Stones song? She goes running to the shelter of her mother's little helper, you know, like people taking benzodiazepines to work with their anxiety.
1: Mm, and opiates of course, are going through the roof. Um, Yes, in the States, but we have a similar problem here now. Um, so how does it fit into the trigger behaviour reward loop?
0: So if we were to map this out, let's say thinking about climate, uh, you know, is a trigger, or it could be watching the news or seeing yet another, you know, wildfire or, you know, typhoon or or hurricane, you know, and, and so that's the trigger, whatever it is, or it could just be a thought like, oh, no, you know, the world is getting hotter. The behavior, you know, because that that trigger, that's unpleasant, the behavior is to numb ourselves, let's say, as an example. And that numbing is rewarding because it feels better than wallowing in the, oh, no. And then that feeds back. So the next time we have that thought, our brain says, hey, do that again. And it becomes a habit. Does that make sense?
1: That makes absolute perfect sense. So look, in your book, you do pick up on the idea that when the prefrontal cortex, the discerning brain um, sort of is hijacked in this way, uh, it means that willpower can't fix an addiction or a habit. And when you apply that to anxiety, of course, this idea of just calm down. I mean, I often say in the history of people telling other people to calm down, no one has ever
0: calmed down, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah, it just fans the flames. Exactly. exactly. Don't tell me to calm down. You're making me more anxious. (laughs) That's right. So look,
1: willpower is just not going to fix this problem. Um, So I want to get to the solution that you put forward Um, And it's a three-step solution. I thought to keep this interesting and agile and real, uh, we might use one of my anxious sort of dilemmas or habits. Um, And it's no great secret, uh, as I say in the introduction, that I have anxiety and I have fairly ugly, embarrassing, awkward sort of forms of it. But I'll share an, an, an everyday one. How about this? What I actually lie awake, Freshing about. I wake up at three in the morning and it's there. And then I wake mm-hmm. up, you know, it's sort of five or six in the morning um, and I'm still thinking about it. And it's the thing that can get my stomach churning and actually paralyze me at times and see me withdraw, which is my thing. I take off overseas, which of course we can't do that at the moment. And that is trying to understand other humans. I <laughs> kid you not, like that's the thing that yeah. will see me un- coming undone. and I find it very hard to understand other humans' reactions and their motivations, and I'm a very upfront person. I say mm. it as it is, and when other people don't say it as it is, I go into a spiral of, of angst. So if we can use that as an example, hopefully it's a helpful one, um, and I suppose people listening could use whatever other kind of anxious habit they might have. It might be social media checking, you know, scrolling and scrolling till midnight mm-hmm. each night. So everyone at home can kind of apply that, but could you talk me through your three-step solution alternative to willpowering your way out of anxiety?
0: I'd be happy to. So the first step relies on this idea that if we don't know how our minds work, we can't work with our minds, right? So you know, I wish there was an instruction manual that we all got at birth. And it's like, read this, you know, or maybe read it when you're six or something like that. And, you know, and then here, here, you're good to go. Yeah. That's unfortunately. You read, where, it, where do you where, come
1: from? Where do I come from? And this is how your brain works. That's the, <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's the, yeah. the designated reading for a six-year-old.
0: Yeah. In, in that order, I, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's perfect. So we don't, you know, actually the manual is still being written as we go, you know, as new neuroscience uh, is, is discovered. So the first step is really mapping our minds, right? If we can't see what our habit loops are, we can't possibly work with them. you know. And that's what I actually do that with my patients in my clinic. You know, if somebody comes in with panic disorder, I've even written about uh, some of my patients in my unwinding anxiety book, you know, I'll pull out a piece of paper and I'll say, okay. You know as i take their history what's that trigger what's the behavior what's the result and we map it out together because often they have no idea how their mind works and without that, you know, understanding, they can't move forward. And, and they often have these aha moments. It's nothing, you know, it's, it's no fantastic sitting on the couch, you know, with me with a sketch pad and a cigar saying, aha, here it is, you know, here's the mother of all interpretations. It's basically, okay, what's that habit? Let's map it out. So let's map it out. What's, what would you say the trigger is uh, for, for that habit that you're talking about?
1: oh, it'll be behaviour that seems odd to me. It doesn't fit with the way that I would do something, yeah. Okay. Somebody who doesn't respond or they're playing games with me or they're not saying what they really want to say.
0: Okay. So let, can we call that Sarah incongruent behavior? <laughs>
1: yeah, let's <laughs> make performing. it about me. Yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, wait a minute, this, this dude is acting not like I would expect them to act. So what's the behavior then? It could, is it a mental one? Is it a physical one? Do you like ruminate over like, what were they thinking or why did they do that? What, what's the behavior?
1: Yeah. I, I rethink the scenario over and over. And then I try mm. to find ways to respond that might be able ah. to get further answers or to help them. Often, it's about trying to help them get clear on what they're trying to say to me. Like, hey, mm-hmm. bust free, be like Sarah, and just say it as it is, and and experience the freedom of that. You know, own it, admit your <laughs> faults, get on with it. Um, so there's a lot of that. Me mind mapping, trying to sort of mm-hmm. orchestrate how I can best get the get an understanding, get the best out of that other human, if that makes sense. And then it's yes. all these, um, the spirit, the scalier moments. Oh, we should would said that. It's just over and over again, looking at it from different angles.
0: Mm. Okay, great. So that's a beautiful description of this mental behavior. Let's finish that circle in terms of the mapping. So trigger behavior, what's the result? Like, let's say it wakes you up at three in the morning. H- how's your sleep? You know, oh, how do you feel the next house. morning?
1: I mean, I'm a shocking sleeper <laughs> and it's primarily because I'm trying to work out other humans all night, you know, subconsciously mm-hmm. and at the conscious level. Um, so, yeah. no, the, you're absolutely right. It ends up also, excuse my language, but clusterfucking also my relationship with that person when I have to see them a few days later mm. because I'm, I've so over-intellectualised it and so sort of tangled it. I'm sometimes mute around them, yeah. you know? Yeah.
0: And sleep deprived on top of it, sleep deprived right?
1: and, <laughs> and irascible, just not liking humanity, you know? Yeah.
0: Okay. So that's a great mapping. That's the first step is just mapping these out. And it's it sounds simple, but it's essential. And it's surprising how if we just go throughout our day and we just look for, you know, pick a behavior, I like to start there, you know, oh, what? Here's here's this habitual thing I'm doing. We can just see if we can trace it back. Oh, what triggered this? Triggers the least important part. So if we don't find the trigger, not a big deal. But then we can trace it forward and say, what am I getting from this? What's the result? And that, so let's actually shift into the second step now. The second step is really based on some very fundamental neuroscience, which is that the only way for a behavior to change is to change the reward value of that behavior If something if our brain is convinced that something's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it, right? That's that's not rocket science. It's not even, you know, esoteric deep neuroscience It's pretty common sense. So if we look at that trigger behavior result, notice how it'd be great if we could just focus on the behavior and change it. But like you're saying, willpower doesn't work. If it did, I could have one visit with every single one of my psychiatric patients and then we'd be done.
1: You'd be out of business. <laughs> yeah.
0: I would I would lay hands on and I would say, quit smoking. Just and they do would it. quit smoking. Mm. Yeah.
1: Stay calm. Stop
0: overeating. Right. That's right. Stay, calm down. <laughs> Relax. And they would. Oh, thank you, Dr. Brewer. You're, you know, it doesn't work that way. How it works is how rewarding a behavior is. So if a if a behavior is rewarding, we're going to keep doing it that's something that folks really do not focus on because we like to think you know this whole you know well it's just that i don't have enough willpower and it's it's my fault and all this I don't know why we've been overlooking these very basic neuroscientific context concepts. They've been around for decades. Right. Mm-hmm. And in fact, my lab's done research on this. So we did studies with people who are overeating and we built this craving tool right into our Eat right now app where we basically have people pay attention as they overeat. We, we baked it into, we have a smoking cessation app called craving to quit. We baked it in there and we have people, this might sound crazy. We have people pay attention as they smoke cigarettes, right? And what they realize is that cigarettes taste like shit. (laughs) And guess what? Their brain is like, wow, I didn't really notice that because they started smoking when they were 13 and they were, you know, the reward was being cool at school, even though they forgot that they, you know, threw up the first couple of times that they smoked because it's nicotine a, as a toxin and all this. But, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I didn't never, never notice this. I've had patients who've been smoking 40 years and I have them pay attention as they smoke and they look at me like, Oh, how did I not notice this before? Right. It only takes, are you ready for this? We just published a study on this. It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention. This is with an overeating study we did to, for people to change that reward value so that it go drops below zero as in they shift their behavior. So that's what the second step is, is really looking at the behavior, looking at the results of that behavior and asking, what am I getting from this, right? Not intellectually, but really feeling into their direct experience.
1: Yeah, it sounds a hell of a lot like mindfulness, right? But it's got scientific <laughs> it stats attached to it, which make us kind of pay more attention, I think. Um, that's really interesting. So yeah, it's basically having a good hard look at what you think is the reward and realizing it's actually not that great like yes it's pretty substandard so my reward of course is um let's have a look at it my reward or the result if we can use that is that mm-hmm. people find me really perplexing um mm-hmm. and really actually if i'm to be honest the upshot is quite often they walk away particularly around men folk they're like really in- kind of find, you know, my conversation quite interesting and all of this kind of thing. But then when I start to get into that space where I'm trying to mind map and I'm exhausted and irascible and overhumanity when I actually meet up with them, they're like, oh, can't cope with this. So the reward, if I'm to be honest, from me trying to understand why people behave in certain ways is um, or the result is that I lose them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So not much of a reward from a pragmatic standpoint. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had moments where, like, you did figure something out or you had an insight about somebody?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And it's that aha moment where I go, oh, I understand.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So that probably feels pretty rewarding. What percentage of the time is that the case?
1: No, ah, 30.
0: 30. Okay. Yeah. Not great odds. No. <laughs> you would, if you were gambling, you would lose money. Right. And so you can think of this as your brain taking a gamble. It's like, Oh, I'm going to play this lottery. I'm going to figure this out. And you know, 30% of the time you figure something out, probably hundred percent of the time you don't get great sleep. (laughs) And you're talking about all these negative results where you lose someone. Right. So when you pay attention to that, if you just feel into the results there net net positive or negative,
1: Oh, it's, it's negative. So I suppose what you're suggesting is I then um, feel into that reality, feel mm-hmm. into that I- inevitable conclusion. And at 3 o'clock in the morning when I wake up, Freddie is just go. is is remind myself of the result? Is that it? I focus on, oh, hang on, what's the result again? Ah, oh, yeah. As opposed to the trigger.
0: Yes, yes. So if you did just that, so imagine doing that, Would you? would you be like, oh, yeah, maybe I should ruminate a little bit more and get less sleep.
1: No. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is that the right answer? That, well, you tell me. I mean, this is your experience. My sense is, you know, if you remind yourself and you're like, huh, why am I doing this? You might It might be easier to let go of it and get back to sleep. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, that's right. That's absolutely right. So, look, I think this brings us to the third step, right? And I just want to preface <laughs> it because obviously I've, I've read, you know, and listened to you and and I sort of know what's coming next, but I'll just let listeners know, this is the wild idea. We're about to go um, into your wild ideas. So the third step.
0: Okay. So with that second step, if our brain starts to become disenchanted with the old behavior, right? And we're like, eh, not that great. Smoking a cigarette, not that great. Overeating, not that great. You know, trying to figure this person out and getting lost, losing all my sleep, not that great. What that does is it opens up the space to give our brain something better. And I call this uh, the BBO, getting the bigger, better offer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know about you, but if, you know, back in high school and, you know, we're, we're expecting, you know, we're like, oh, I'm going on a date with this person. And we call them up and we say, I'm going to I'm gonna uh, pick you up at, at X time, and they're like, you know, I I actually can't, you know, I, I'm doing my hair or I'm I'm sick or whatever, and we're like, oh, they just had a BBO. Somebody else asked them out that is definitely at a, big, <laughs> a better quality than I am,
1: unless you're me. Unless you're me because you'll come up with a whole heap of other scenarios at three o'clock in the morning to try to explain that. And I probably haven't worked out that they've found someone better. But anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the bigger, our brain is always looking for a bigger, better offer because that's how our brains work. You know, they're going to find things that are rewarding and keep doing them. So here we can give our brain something that is better than say ruminating or, you know, or overthinking. Mm-hmm. Uh And that bigger, better offer tends to come in two flavors. So one, I think of in the realm of curiosity and one of kindness, but I think, you know, maybe we focus on curiosity here. Cause I really, Mm. the more I explore curiosity, the more I swear it is a superpower.
1: (laughs) And that's the bit that I absolutely love from your thesis and Correct me if I'm wrong. This idea of curiosity as a mindset, as an approach that's more charming than the alternative is that it feels better than Mm -hmm. being anxious. So that's one aspect. So you're going to veer in that direction just naturally, you know. Um, Yes. But also, and this is where it adds extra dimensions to it, it actually creates openness and we can't be – open and rigid or closed, which is anxious at the same time. So it almost blocks out or crowds out anxiety. Is that sort of how it works?
0: That's a great way of putting it. So when we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling worried, when we're ruminating, when we're overthinking, all of those feel closed down, contracted, like you're talking about. And curiosity, when we're truly curious about something, we're open. We're like, oh, instead of, you know, that that anxiety brings the, oh no, and we kind of close down. Mm-hmm. With curiosity, we open up, oh, what's happening? You can't be closed and open at the same time. They're binary opposites. So absolutely, just like you're saying.
1: At a cognitive level. That's, that's how our brains work. We can't be open and closed at the same time. You have- Two techniques, though, because people listening might go, "Oh, all very well, just choose to be curious." But there's some techniques that can get you there, and it's through the body, which takes us back to I think, sort of step two. This idea of feeling in to mm-hmm. what the result is uh, or the reward, and how does that reward feel? Does it feel good or bad? Does the smoking taste disgusting? Oh, it does. So, some feeling or somatic techniques. I think one of them is the five finger breathing is that right can you talk through that one with us
0: yes that's a great one to help us ground so if we're really anxious or at the far end of the spectrum of anxiety if we're panicked it's really hard to think you know you, uh, I think the definition of, of panic is something like you know severe anxiety leading to wildly unthinking behavior
1: <laughs> wildly know? unthinking behavior wow <laughs> yes
0: yeah so our prefrontal cortex is not only offline it has left the country <laughs> you know? not only left the building it's left the country right we cannot be thinking so the first thing to do there is to just ground ourselves so we can get our brain back online and reboot it and i love five finger breathing because it is so simple it's something we can teach our kids we can have our kids lead us through we can and we can do anytime you know and the idea is When we notice that we're panicking or anxious, we can just take the index, the base of our index finger on one hand and place it at the base of our pinky, on the outside Mm -hmm. of our pinky on our other hand. And as we breathe in, we can pay attention to four things. We can pay attention to the physical sensations on two of our fingers. That's two things. As we trace up our finger as we breathe in. And then as we breathe out, we can pay attention to those things as well as seeing our hands and paying attention to our breath. So that's four things. We're paying attention to the physical sensations of our hands. We're paying attention to the physical sensation of breathing. Or we're paying, to, paying attention to the visual aspect of things. Our working memory, the part of our brain that holds working memory, can't hold very many things in working memory at once. It's not many more things than, say, four so what this does is it kind of crowds out. It's like our brain only has a certain amount of RAM, you know, random access memory. And so if you crowd, you know, if you fill it up with a bunch of applications, then no other application can start up. Right. Mm. And so the idea is to fill our brain with, with the present moment experience with, a, you know, a breathing practice, you know, and as we do five breaths, we basically traced our hand. And what that does is it crowds out the anxiety and the worry thoughts. And when those, so let's say we take five breaths, trace our hand to our thumb, we take five more, we trace back to the pinky. our, Our physiology tends to calm down a little bit just by consciously paying attention to our breathing. I don't know if you've noticed this, but often when we're panicked or when we're anxious, we either hold our breath or we breathe very shallowly and rapidly. So this even helps us just take some mindful, normal, or even deeper breaths as we're paying attention.
1: It's really interesting that it's the four things. It's like you load it up, so mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people struggle with meditation because it's um, generally one practice, one thing that you distract yourself with, distract being a loaded word. But I find that because I'm very, very cerebral, um, I need a good three or four. So I've yes. been applying curiosity to mm-hmm. my mantra, on top of my mantra, on top of the sensation of the breath sort of touching the base, you know, the top of my lip. And so that's three things that can actually Hmm. get me to that space. I know there's kind of all kinds of gurus out there that only need the one thing, but I think there's a lot (laughs) of us who need three or four. So, yeah, Yeah. I think that finger tracing idea and breathing and having a loaded up um, sort of set of techniques is very, very helpful.
0: And I'll add one piece to that, which is when we finish doing, say, five or ten breaths, If our physiology has calmed down a little bit and those worry thoughts come back in, there tends to be a mismatch in the emotional intensity, right? And so, you know, when we're feeling anxious and we're thinking anxious, those two are, they become BFFs, you know, best friends forever. And and the, the thinking brain's like, yeah, I'm worried. And the body's like, yeah, I'm really anxious. And then it, it feeds back, and then we start thinking more anxious thoughts, and then we feel more anxious, and they just feed off of each other, right? Nonstop. Well, if there's an emotional intensity gap where our thinking brain is like, I'm anxious, and our feeling body's like, Yeah, I'm not really feeling that anxious, guess which one wins? Yeah. Right? You know, our thinking brain doesn't hold a candle to our feeling body. And so our feeling body's like, you know, I'm not going to, I can just look at that thought and notice it as a thought and not really believe it and let it go.
1: Mm, there's a lack of congruency. Um, and so yes. cognitively, uh, we're less likely to buy into it. The other technique that I really liked from your book um, is eyes wide open as a technique. Can you talk that one through?
0: Yes. I love this one. So we tend to hold emotions in our bodies in the sense that we associate certain physical sensations with certain emotions. So for example, if I um, put my shoulders up to my ears, right, that's not typically a a physical state that I associate with being calm. (laughs) You know, it's like when we're anxious, we tend to tense our shoulders, right? And when we kind of just let our shoulders drop and relax them, that's we tend to associate that with calm. Well, you know what? Our eyes hold all sorts of somatic memory. So, for example, uh, let's let's just do this together. So, um, let's say open your eyes really wide and try to get angry, like. Judd, I'm so angry at you for making me do this exercise live. Oh, I'm angry. How angry can you get when your eyes are really wide open?
1: Not really, because I'm finding it slightly hysterical. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how do we tend to hold our eyes when we're angry?
1: Narrow. Like yes. Tight. Yes.
0: Cause they're, they're laser focused on, I'm going to do something right. Anger is about action. I'm, I'm not open-minded right now. I'm not, you know, you know, let's not have a discussion. I'm going to do something. Right. So at a
1: primitive level, it's like when we've got to actually focus on a, I don't know, our lunch that's working its way across the savannas, we narrow yes. in. That's when we get really honed. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, and yes. of course our flight or fight mechanism is on as a result. Yeah, exactly,
0: mm. exactly. When our eyes are really wide open, it's about taking in information. And that happens both with fear, but also with curiosity. And so if we're feeling anxious, we can just get curious, huh? What are my eyes doing right now? And they tend to be more in the uh, range of anger where they're more narrowed, you know, cause we're ruminating on something, we're focused on something that we're gonna worry about. And if we just open them really wide, as we're worrying about something, our brain's like, "Huh? Should I really be worried about this?" Because we're we're signaling to our brain, "Hey, wait a minute. You know, this is the eye stance of curiosity, not that of anxiety."
1: Ready to pop the question.
0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: It's interesting. um, I want to sort of go a little bit more into this idea of curiosity. And I mentioned in the intro, and we covered it off with your book as well. um, But I, when I was writing my book, which is about the climate crisis loosely, I actually found that my anxiety dialed down. And, you know, I sort of joke that well, it's nothing like writing a book about something to make you get very vigilant because everybody's looking at you to see if you're actually living out your own mantras and your own lessons. Um, But I'm wondering, was it more about the fact that I was in a state of sustained curiosity so I was able to witness a whole bunch of things and behaviours that both myself and the people around me were caught up in? Would you say that that has a little bit to do with it, that if we find the process of our own anxiety interesting we apply apply yeah. curiosity to our own neuroses that i mean mm-hmm. what a wonderful salve it's so watertight
0: i would say it's a superpower you do say that <laughs> <laughs> but in that sense you know joking aside what you're pointing out is curiosity when we inject curiosity when we're angry when we're frustrated when we're anxious when we're worried it really helps Right. Because we're like, oh, oh, instead of, oh no, we're like, oh, what does this feel like in my body? Or oh, what's the habit loop that I'm caught in right now? And by observing, you know, there's this observer effect in physics. By observing the result, you affect the results. You can we find the same thing in psychology. By observing our thoughts, by observing these habit loops, we can't, almost by definition, we can't be as identified or caught up in those loops. We can't be as identified with the thoughts.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the principle of much Buddhist thought and, and meditative um, training, of course. Well, to go back to me for a final time in terms of my, my lying awake at night trying to understand the human race, um, the curiosity, I suppose, if I choose curiosity, that then enables me to actually find the process of mapping out the trigger, behaviour, reward or result kind of scenario. Interesting. You know, like mm-hmm. that's actually more interesting than kind of thinking about what the other humans are meant to be thinking. And then the understanding through my body whether I actually find the outcome good or bad, that's a really, really interesting. Like it's like, oh, let's hang on, let's play around with this. So the process of going through step one, step two, step three of your anxious solution is all predicated on just being curious. Like So yes. the process of understanding and I don't know, wrestling with our anxiety is is the fix.
0: It is. Right. We have to be curious to map out these lips. We have to be curious to ask, what am I getting from this? And we and curiosity itself is that bigger, better offer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very, very neat and indeed a superpower. Jud, one thing I do, and I'm sure it's not unique, um, I write about this quite a lot. I write out my anxiety. So it doesn't matter where I am. I'll be at a bar in New York on my own having a meltdown, an existential meltdown, and I'll ask the person behind the bar for a piece of paper and I'll just write out what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. And again that creates a little bit of the distance. I become the observer, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's it becomes a curious investigation. I've always known intuitively to access that curious open space as a way to break my anxious habit in the moment. Um, so that's why I think it really registered with me because I do it in different ways and so it's so wonderful to have that recognition when, when a, a brain bigger than my own actually names it, you know, and puts it in print and he goes, ah, the recognition of it all.
0: Well, it sounds like you've had this wisdom for quite some time and I have to say just seeing that smile on your face it's like you know this in your own experience. It's like you're not just saying this. You you know this. That's wisdom.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I've been taught by nature. I mean, mm. you know, I've known intuitively to go out into nature and I find it incredibly fascinating. And I'm very lucky that I've had access to that or or, or I don't know. I've got an attunement to it. But um mm. You know, the curiosity I'm able to, ex- to access when I'm in nature has been my immediate fix along with writing out. And I think it, hap- it, it. I've always said that it's because I think walking in nature and handwriting happens at the same pace as discerning thought. So it allows me to access the prefrontal cortex. What I love you- it. Oh, good. I love it. <laughs> The other one that you talk about, of course, is kindness. It works in a very similar way to curiosity. Can you explain that one?
0: Yes. So and maybe you can help me with this. So I don't know if you've ever judged yourself for anything uh, uh, in your life. Twi-
1: once or twice. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: So think back to that distant time, that one time that you judged yourself. Does it feel closed or does it feel open?
1: It feels rigid and kind of vibratey and headachey.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it shares qualities with anxiety, for example, and frustration and all these other things. Now, how about kindness when you're kind to yourself? Like when you go into nature as an act of self-kindness, does that feel closed or does it feel open?
1: Oh, I was about to say the word expanded and flowy and free. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So which, which one's the bigger, better offer? Yeah. The kindness,
1: the openness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it's that simple. It's the same premise, you know, it's like, when we find ourselves caught up in a habit loop of self-judgment or judging others or or any type of judgment, <laughs> you know we can notice what am I getting from this? Is this is making me more closed? Is this disconnecting me from people and nature and my surroundings? And then how do when we we can then compare that to when we're kind to ourselves? What's it like when I'm kind? Oh, it feels more open. I feel more connected etc it, it to our brains it's a no-brainer right yeah. Kindness wins every time
1: um, On a previous episode, I uh, spoke to Rutger Bregman about his wild idea and that is that we're in fact kinder than current discourse gives us credit for so that we are programmed to be far kinder than culture um, enables us to be and which I find a wonderful. Idea. So we are actually programmed to this kind of openness and that makes a lot of sense. But it makes me wonder, um, I'm curious, Judd, is our culture preventing us from accessing this superpower of curiosity? Because I would say I think there's a number of studies that show that our ability to handle ambiguity is at an all-time low. At a time mm-hmm. when uncertainty and unknowingness of the future is at an all time high, so um is that something that worries you, and do you think that you know that's a, a massive disservice that we are imposing upon ourselves, this idea of like we can't we we we're not comfortable with nuance, we mm-hmm. actually seek out rigidity, our culture sees us you know gravitate towards rigidity so so what is the opportunity here or what should, what do we need to be doing as a culture
0: well i think i think this is an unintended consequence of these large social media platforms as an example where They know all of this neuroscience to get us uh, kind of hooked on their products, right? It's an attention economy, they want eyeballs and that's what gets revenue. So these are purely agnostic business, you know, decisions where like, Mm -hmm. how do we maximize revenue? You know, we're we're not trying to destroy the planet. Oops. Um, (laughs) But the idea here is you know, if you look at likes, you know, Facebook really took off when they, my understanding is when the like button was introduced, it wasn't just Facebook itself. It was that like button that made it really sticky, really mm-hmm. addictive. And then also the, when they introduced the news feed, and there was all, there's some other craziness that happened neuroscientifically there, but let's just take the like as an example it is much less ambiguous to just look at your feed and know exactly where you stand with everyone, you know, whether it's viral, mediocre or no likes. Right. And our brains would prefer that because it's that, you know, back to the uncertainty, back to the ambiguity, you know, our brains don't like that uncertainty. So given a choice between certainty and uncertainty, even if it's something as trivial and non-important Right, it's not important to get a bunch of likes. Uh, Our brains will go for that, and so we're actually losing our ability to tolerate distress and ambiguity. Right, so face-to-face interactions—you've got to look at body language, you've got to, you know, listen to tone of voice, look at, you know, all this stuff. Lots of ambiguity there we are losing our ability to to be comfortable with this discomfort of ambiguity. And so it's like, we go, we either have our safe place, this comfort zone where everything, you know, we know exactly where we stand. And when we don't, we move into our panic zones instead of moving into our growth zone where we can lean into ambiguity. You know, we're going, Oh no, you know, I, I didn't get a bunch of likes or, Oh no, you know, Instead of going, oh, this is different. What can I learn from this? And so I think that's one piece that contributes there is just this, you know, lack of ability to tolerate distress. And, you know, our weapons of mass distraction, you know, our smartphones, they're really good at any time there's something that's uncomfortable. We can just go and distract ourselves on our phones, you know. People can't stop at a stoplight or red light anymore for 30 seconds and just look around. You know, they're all mm-hmm. looking down at their crotch because they're checking their phone. <laughs> you know? 30 like, seconds, people.
1: <laughs> we're distinctly uncurious. Yes. And it's like if we're talking in a habit framework, we've got a lack of resilience or an inability to deal with discomfort, habit, or addiction. Yes. yes. Um, and maybe. I'm probably extrapolating things a little too far here. But really, if we want to break from that, we need to actually get curious about that. We need to practice curiosity in and around that. And, you know, a couple of the things that we can be curious about just at the top of my head is neoliberalism, this idea of the individual. The individual is a very closed, rigid concept, whereas the opposite, the collective, is expansive and and it feels more charming and it's kinder. And, and so we need to start being curious about that. And another one I just thought of when we were talking about triggers because, of course, you've mentioned that there's no point looking at triggers, you know. We need to be really focusing our attention on the result or the reward and how that feels, and that's where we can start to shift a habit, an addiction, anxiety. Um, but we're a trigger-happy, trigger-focused culture. It's all about the bloody triggers. We talk yeah. I've been triggered, you caused that, you made me do that. There's this blame outwards. And that stops us from being curious about, is that the way we want to live?
0: I'm so glad you bring that up. It it just, it makes my heart heavy in the sense of how distracted we are with trying to either blame people about the triggers or avoid triggers or get rid of triggers instead of looking at our brains and saying, you know, the triggers are always going to be there. We don't have as much control as we'd like to have over our environment, over our world, over each other. So instead of running away, you know, and trying to avoid these triggers, can we actually lean into the discomfort and Mm. have curiosity be that new habit, right? So whatever comes up, oh, instead of, oh no. Yeah, being curious
1: about, Discomfort, going for the discomfort, choosing discomfort. I use the phrase in, in one of my books, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, choose the wobbliest table at the cafe. And then mm-hmm. to quote my meditation teacher, he says to me, and let's see what happens. <laughs> Keep the camera rolling. I love it. Mm. Look, I think that's a wonderful note to finish on. I think curiosity is a superpower and I like the idea of being curious about the discomfort that's going to come our way, I think that is a great way to live one's life. Here, here. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Not to get too overzealous or anything, but perhaps the solution to all our ills as humans on this planet is simply to get curious. Curious about our discomfort, which will then build resilience what's ahead. It reminds me of something that Blaise Pascal is famously quoted on. It goes something like, the cause of all our ills is our inability to sit in a room with ourselves, which is to stop, you know, and to, to stay longer with a problem and to get discerning, to allow the prefrontal cortex to switch on and, and actually work stuff out in a, in a helpful way, I suppose, and then to choose the bigger, better offer. To drum in the process, the three steps that Judd outlines to solving anxiety, that is to break out of the habitual loop of anxiety, the first one is to map out the trigger, behaviour and reward or result. And you do that with curiosity. So you just simply find it really interesting to see, well, what triggered this? And you don't spend too much time on that. You move on to, okay, well, what's my behaviour? That's generally the worry, the anxiety And then what is actually the result? Is it that rewarding? So that's step two is to feel into the result and feel if it feels charming in some sort of way and pleasurable and you you remain curious about that. And then step three is literally just to always choose curious and kind, which is to say to choose openness because that itself is the bigger, better offer. It feels better. And um, Judd left us with two techniques for accessing that curiosity if it is sort of counterintuitive to the way that you're living, and that is to try the five-finger breathing technique. Those sort of four distractions will help you get into that open space so that when anxiety enters your orbit, there's a mismatch. It's just not going to sit so well. And then the other one is to, to try the eyes wide open because when your eyes are open, it actually doesn't allow for rigidity. And it crowds out the anxiety, the closed offness, the stuff that's probably going to land us in a fair bit of trouble.